autoeroticism a study of the spontaneous manifestations of the sexual impulse part 1 section 2 of studies in the psychology of sex volume 1 by Havelock Ellis this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org autoeroticism a study of the spontaneous manifestations of the sexual impulse part 1 section 2 in a further class of cases no external object whatever is used to procure the sexual orgasm but the more or less voluntary pressure of the thighs alone is brought to bear upon the sexual regions it is done either when sitting or standing the thighs being placed together and firmly crossed and the pelvis rocked so that the sexual organs are pressed against the inner and posterior parts of the thighs. This is sometimes done by men and is fairly common among women, especially, according to Marchneau, among those who sit much, such as dressmakers and milliners, those who use the sewing machine and those who ride. Wedler remarks that in his experience in Scandinavia, Thigh friction is the commonest form of masturbation in women. The practice is widespread, and a medical correspondent in India tells me of a Brahmin widow who confessed to this form of masturbation. I am told that in London both schools at the present time, thigh rubbing is not infrequent among the girl scholars. The proportion mentioned in one school was about 10% of the girls over 11. The thigh rubbing is done more or less openly and is interpreted by the uninitiated as due merely to a desire to relieve the bladder. It is found in female infants. Thus Townsend records the case of an infant, eight months old, who would cross her right thigh over the left, close her eyes and clench her fists. After a minute or two, there would be complete relaxation with sweating and redness of face. This would occur about once a week or oftener. The child was quite healthy, with no abnormal condition of the genital organs. The frequency of thigh friction among women as a form of masturbation is due to the fact that it is usually acquired innocently and it involves no indecorum. The Suitso reports the case of a girl of twelve who at school, when having to wait her turn at the water closet, for fear of wetting herself, would put her clothes between her legs and press her thighs together, moving them backwards and forwards in the effort to control her bladder. She discovered that a pleasurable sensation was thus produced and acquired the habit of practicing the maneuver for its own sake. At the age of 17, she began to vary it in different ways. Thus she would hang from a tree with her legs swinging and her chemise pressed between her thighs, which she would rub together. Thigh friction in some of its forms is so comparatively decorous a form of masturbation that it may even be performed in public places. Thus, a few years ago, while waiting for a train at a station on the outskirts of a provincial town, I became aware of the presence of a young woman sitting alone on a seat at a little distance, whom I could observe unnoticed. She was leaning back with legs crossed, swinging the crossed foot vigorously and continuously. This continued without interruption for ten minutes after I first observed her. Then the swinging movement reached a climax. She leaned still further back, 
thus bringing the sexual region still more closely in contact with the edge of the bench and straightened and stiffened her body and legs in what appeared to be a momentary spasm. There could be little doubt as to what had taken place. A few moments later, she slowly walked from her solitary seat into the waiting room and sat down among the other waiting passengers. Quite still now and with uncrossed legs, a pale, quiet young woman, possibly a farmer's daughter, serenely unconscious that her maneuver had been detected and very possibly herself ignorant of its true nature. There are many other forms in which the impulse of autoerotism presents itself. Dancing is often a powerful method of sexual excitement, not only among civilized but among savage peoples. And Zakh describes the erotic dances of Swahili women as having a masturbatory object. Stimulation of the nades is a potent adjuvant to the production of self-excitement and self-flagellation with rods, etc., is practiced by some individuals, especially young women. Urtication is another form of this stimulation. Revedin knew a young woman who obtained sexual gratification by flogging herself with chestnut burrs, and it is stated that in some parts of France, it is not uncommon for young girls to masturbate by rubbing the leaves of the Linaria symbolaria here called pinton or timbard, onto the sexual parts, thus producing a burning sensation. Stimulation of the mamma, normally an erogenous center in women, may occasionally serve as a method for obtaining autoerotic satisfaction, including the orgasm in both sexes. I have been told of a case in a man, and a medical correspondent in India informs me that he knows a Eurasian woman addicted to masturbation, who can only obtain the orgasm by rubbing the genitals with one hand, while with the other she rubs and finally squeezes her breast. The tactile stimulation even of regions of the body, which are not normally erogenous zones in either sex, may sometimes lead on to sexual excitement. Hertzsprung, as well as Freud, believes that this is often the case as regards finger-sucking and toe-sucking, in infancy. Even stroking the chin, remarks Debrine, may produce a pollution. Taylor refers to the case of a young woman of 22 who was liable to attacks of choric movements of the hands which would terminate in alternately pressing the middle finger on the tip of the nose and the traegers of the ear when a far away pleased expression would appear on her face. She thus produced sexual excitement and satisfaction. She had no idea of wrongdoing and was surprised and ashamed when she realized the nature of her act. Most of the foregoing examples of autoerotism are commonly included, by no means correctly, under the heading of masturbation. There are, however, a vast number of people possessing strong sexual emotions and living a solitary life who experience, sometimes by instinct and sometimes on moral grounds, a strong repugnance for these manifestations of autoerotism. As one highly intelligent lady writes, I have sometimes wondered whether I could produce it, that is complete sexual excitement, mechanically. But I have a curious, unreasonable repugnance to trying the experiment. It would materialize it too much. The same repugnance may be traced in the tendency to avoid, so far as possible, the use of hands, 
It is quite common to find this instinctive, unreasoning repugnance among women, a healthy repugnance not founded on any moral ground. In men, the same repugnance exists, more often combined with or replaced by a very strong moral and aesthetic objection to such practices. But the presence of such a repugnance, however invincible, is very far from carrying us outside the autoerotic field. The production of the sexual orgasm is not necessarily dependent on any external contact or voluntary mechanical cause. As an example, though not of specifically autoerotic manifestations, I may mention the case of a man of 57, a somewhat eccentric preacher, etc., who writes, My whole nature goes out so to some persons, and they thrill and stir me so, that I have an emission while sitting by them, with no thought of sex, only the gladness of soul found its way out thus, and a glow of health suffused the whole body. There was no spasmodic conclusion, but a pleasing, gentle sensation, as a few drops of semen passed. In reality, no doubt, not semen, but urethral fluid. This man's condition may certainly be considered somewhat morbid. He is attracted to both men and women, and the sexual impulse seems to be irritable and weak. But a similar state of things exists so often in women, no doubt due to sexual repression, and in individuals who are in a general state of normal and good health, that in these it can scarcely be called morbid. Brooding on sexual images, which the theologians termed delectatio morosa, may lead to spontaneous orgasm in either sex, even in perfectly normal persons. Hammond described as a not uncommon form of psychic coitus, a condition in which the simple act of imagination alone, in the presence of the desired object, suffices to produce orgasm. In some public conveyance, theatre, or elsewhere, the man sees a desirable woman, and by concentrating his attention on her person, and imagining all the states of intimacy, he quickly succeeds in producing orgasm. Nisfero refers to an Italian work girl of 14, who could obtain ejaculation of mucus four times a day in the workroom in the presence of the other girls, without touching herself or moving her body, by simply thinking of sexual things. If the orgasm occurs spontaneously, without the aid of mental impressions or any manipulations ad hoc, though under such conditions it ceases to be sinful from the theological standpoint, it certainly ceases also to be normal. Serio records the case of a somewhat neurotic woman of 50 who had been separated from her husband for 10 years and since lived a chaste life. At this age, however, she became subject to violent crises of sexual orgasm, which would come on without any accompaniment of voluptual thoughts. McGillicuddy records three cases of spontaneous orgasms in women coming under his notice. Such crises are frequently found in both men and women who, from moral reasons, ignorance or on other grounds, are restrained from attaining the complete sexual orgasm but whose sexual emotions are, literally, continually dribbling from them. Schrenk Nürzisch knows a lady who is spontaneously sexually excited on hearing music or seeing pictures without anything lascivious in them. She knows nothing of sexual relationships. 
Another lady is sexually excited on seeing beautiful and natural scenes like the sea. Sexual ideas are mixed up in her mind with these things, and the contemplation of a specially strong and sympathetic man brings the orgasm on in about a minute. Both these ladies masturbate in the streets, restaurants, railways, theatres, without anyone perceiving it. A Brahmin woman informed a medical correspondent in India that she had distinct the feeble orgasm with copious outflow of mucus if she stayed long near a man whose face she liked, and this is not uncommon among European women. Evidently, under such conditions, there is a state of hyperesthetic weakness. Here, however, we are passing the frontiers of strictly autoerotic phenomena. Delectatio morosa, as understood by the theologians, is distinct from desire, and also distinct from the definite intention of effecting the sexual act, although it may lead to those things. It is a voluntary and complacent dallying in imagination with voluptuous thoughts, when no effort is made to repel them. It is, as Aquinas and others point out, constituted by this act of complacent dallying and has no reference to the duration of the imaginative process. Debrin, in his Machiology, deals fully with this question and quotes the opinions of theologians. I may add that in the early penitentials, before the elaboration of Catholic theology, the voluntary emission of semen through the influence of evil thoughts was recognized as a sin, though usually only if it occurred in church. In Egbert's penitential of the 8th or 9th century, the penance assigned for this offense in the case of a deacon is 25 days, in the case of a monk, 30 days, a priest, 40 days, a bishop, 50. The frequency of spontaneous orgasm in women seems to have been recognized in the 17th century. Thus, Schurig, apparently quoting Riolin, states that some women are so wanton that the sight of a handsome man or of their lover or speech with such a one will cause them to ejaculate their semen. There is, however, a closely allied and indeed overlapping form of autoerotism which may be considered here. I mean that associated with reverie or daydreaming. Although this is a very common and important form of autoerotism, besides being in a large proportion of cases, the early stage of masturbation, it appears to have attracted little attention. The daydream has indeed been studied in its chief form in the continued story by Mabel Leroyd of Wesley College. The continued story is an imagined narrative more or less peculiar to the individual by whom it is cherished with fondness and regarded as an especially sacred mental possession to be shared only, if at all, with very sympathizing friends. It is commoner among girls and young women than among boys and young men. Among 352% of both sexes, 47% among the women and only 14% among the men have any continued story. The starting point is an incident from a book or more usually from actual experience which the subject develops. The subject is nearly always the hero or the heroine of the story. 
The growth of the story is favored by solitude and lying in bed before going to sleep is a time specially sacred to its cultivation. No distinct reference, perhaps naturally enough, is made by Ms. Learoyd to the element of sexual emotion with which these stories are often strongly tinged and which is frequently their real motive. Though by no means easy to detect, these elaborate and more or less erotic daydreams are not uncommon in young men and especially in young women. Each individual has his own particular dream, which is always varying or developing, but except in very imaginative persons, to no great extent. Such a daydream is often founded on a basis of pleasurable personal experience and develops on that basis. It may evolve an element of perversity even though that element finds no expression in real life. It is, of course, fostered by sexual abstinence, hence its frequency in young women. Most usually there is little attempt to realize it. It does not necessarily lead to masturbation, though it often causes some sexual congestion or even spontaneous sexual orgasm. The daydream is a strictly private and intimate experience, not only from its very nature, but also because it occurs in images which the subject finds great difficulty in translating into language, even when willing to do so. In other cases, it is elaborately dramatic or romantic in character. The hero or heroine passes through many experiences before attaining the erotic climax of the story. This climax tends to develop in harmony with the subject's growing knowledge or experience. At first, merely a kiss, it may develop into any refinement of voluptuous gratification. The daydream may occur either in normal or abnormal persons. Rousseau, in his Confessions, describes such dreams, in his case combined with masochism and masturbation. A distinguished American novelist, Hamlin Garland, has admirably described in Rose of Duchess Cooley the part played in the erotic daydreams of a healthy normal girl at adolescence by a circus rider seen on the first visit to a circus and becoming a majestic ideal to dominate the girl's thoughts for many years. Rafalovich describes a process by which in sexual inverts the vision of a person of the same sex perhaps seen in the streets or the theatre, is evoked in solitary reveries, producing a kind of psychic onanism, whether or not it leads to physical manifestations. Although daydreaming of this kind has at present been very little studied, since it loves solitude and secrecy, has never been counted of sufficient interest for scientific inquisition. It is really a process of considerable importance, and occupies a large part of the autoerotic field. It is frequently cultivated by refined and imaginative young men and women who lead a chaste life and would often be repelled by masturbation. In such persons, under such circumstances, it must be considered as strictly normal, the inevitable outcome of the play of the sexual impulse. No doubt, it may often become morbid and is never a healthy process when indulged in to excess, as it is liable to be by refined young people with artistic impulses, to whom it is in the highest degree seductive and insidious. As we have seen, however, daydreaming is far from always colored by sexual emotion. 
yet it is a significant indication of its really sexual origin that, as I have been informed by persons of both sexes, even in these apparently non-sexual cases, it frequently ceases altogether on marriage. Even when we have eliminated all these forms of autoerotic activity, however refined, in which the subject takes a voluntary part, we have still left unexplored an important portion of the autoerotic field, a portion which many people are alone inclined to consider normal, sexual orgasm during sleep. That under conditions of sexual abstinence in healthy individuals, there must inevitably be some autoerotic manifestations during waking life, a careful study of the facts compels us to believe. There can be no doubt also that under the same conditions, the occurrence of the complete orgasm during sleep with, in men, seminal emissions is altogether normal. Even Zeus himself, as Pausanias has recorded, was liable to such accidents, a statement which, at all events, shows that to the Greek mind there was nothing derogatory in such an occurrence. The Jews, however, regarded it as an impurity, and the same idea was transmitted to the Christian church and embodied in the word pollutio, by which the phenomenon was designated in ecclesiastical phraseology. According to Billuart and other theologians, pollution in sleep is not sin, unless voluntarily caused. If, however, it begins in sleep and is completed in the half-waking state with the sensation of pleasure, it is a venial sin. But it seems allowable to permit a nocturnal pollution to complete itself an awakening if it occurs without intention. And St. Thomas even says, Si pollutio placiat ut nature exoneratio vel alleviatio pectum non creditor notwithstanding the fair and logical position of the more distinguished latin theologians there has certainly been a widely prevalent belief in catholic countries that pollution during sleep is a sin in the parson's tale chaucer makes the parson say another sin appertaineth to lechery that cometh in sleeping and the sin cometh oft to them that be maidens and eke to them that be corrupt and this sin men cleep pollution that cometh in four manners these four manners being number one languishing of body from rank and abundant humours number two infirmity three surfeit of meat and drink four villainous thoughts four hundred years later madame roland in her memoirs particulier presented a vivid picture of the anguish produced in an innocent girl's mind by the notion of the sinfulness of erotic dreams. She menstruated first at the age of fourteen. Before this, she writes, I had sometimes been awakened from the deepest sleep in a surprising manner. Imagination played no part. I exercised it on too many serious subjects, and my timorous conscience preserved it from amusement with other subjects so that it could not represent what I would not allow it to seek to understand. But an extraordinary effervescence aroused my senses in the heat of repose, and by virtue of my excellent constitution, operated by itself a purification which was as strange to me as its cause. 
The first feeling which resulted was, I know not why, a sort of fear. I had observed in my fillety that we are not allowed to obtain any pleasure from our bodies except in lawful marriage. What I had experienced could be called a pleasure. I was then guilty, and in a class of offences which caused me the most shame and sorrow, since it was that which was most displeasing to the spotless lamb. There was great agitation in my poor heart, prayers and mortifications. How could I avoid it? For indeed I had not foreseen it. But at the instant when I experienced it, I had not taken the trouble to prevent it. My watchfulness became extreme. I scrupulously avoided positions which I found specially exposed me to the accident. My restlessness became so great that at last I was able to awake before the catastrophe. When I was not in time to prevent it, I would jump out of bed, with naked feet, onto the polished floor, and with crossed arms pray to the Saviour to preserve me from the wiles of the devil. I would then impose some penance on myself, and I have carried out to the letter what the prophet king probably only transmitted to us as a figure of oriental speech, mixing ashes with my bread and watering it with my tears. End of Autoeroticism, Part 1, Section 2